On the morning of January 6th, the day in which a joint session of Congress would meet to formalize President-elect Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election, outgoing President Donald J. Trump held a rally on the Ellipse, which is a park near the White House. At the so-called Save America March, Trump gave a speech from behind a glass barrier, declaring he would never concede the election, criticizing the media, calling for Pence to overturn the results. Don Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and several members of Congress also addressed the crowd. Trump told his supporters to fight like hell, to take back our country, and encouraged them to march over to the Capitol. Giuliani called for a trial by combat, and Trump Jr. threatened the president's opponents by saying, we're coming for you, having called for total war in the weeks leading up to the rally. The rioters had openly planned to disrupt the counting of electoral college ballots for several weeks and had called for violence against Congress, Pence, and law enforcement. Plans were coordinated on alt-tech websites such as the Donald.win, the social networking service Parler, the chat apps Telegram, Gab, and others were also used to discuss previous Trump rallies and to make plans for storming the Capitol. At least one group, Stop the Steal, posted on December 23rd its plans to occupy the Capitol with promises to escalate if met with opposition from law enforcement. After marching to the Capitol building, protesters became violent, assaulted United States Capitol police officers and reporters, erected a gallows on the Capitol grounds while chanting, Hang Mike Pence. Capitol security evacuated the Senate and House chambers. Rioters broke past security and occupied the empty state chamber while federal law enforcement officers prevented entry to the evacuated House floor. The office of Nancy Pelosi was looted and vandalized. Improvised explosive devices were later found on the Capitol grounds and in the offices of the Democratic National Committee and Republican National Committee offices. It took more than three hours for police to retake control of the Capitol using riot gear, shields, and batons. Around 5.20 p.m., after speaking to the Secretary of the Army, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan announced that he would send in the Maryland State Police and Maryland National Guard. At around 5.40 p.m., the Sergeant-at-Arms announced that the Capitol had been secured. Five people, including a Capitol Police officer, died from the events and dozens more were seriously injured. Before January 6, 2021, the only time since the American Revolutionary War that the capital of the United States had been occupied by an opposing force was August 24, 1814, when the British Army invaded Washington during the War of 1812. Today on the Milk of Adhumala, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to discuss the events of January 6 with Dr. Brenda Wilhelm, a professor of sociology at Colorado Mesa University, located in beautiful Grand Junction, Colorado. Dr. Wilhelm holds both a master's and PhD in sociology from the University of Arizona. She teaches courses in marriage and families, social problems, sex and gender, life course, racial and ethnic relations, population, social movements, and classical social theory. She also serves as the sociology program coordinator and women's and gender studies advisor at CMU. Dr. Wilhelm, welcome to the Milk of Humla. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be asked. 
Great. And thanks for the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. That's my job. Now, for me personally, seeing the images of the nation's capital occupied and vandalized was upsetting and shocking, although maybe not surprising. What were your initial impressions upon be, be, becoming aware of what was happening at the Capitol? You know, it was actually a really weird moment for us because we um, were working at home, my husband and I, and he had just come home from walking the dog. And as soon as he came in, he said, you know, turn on the TV, there's something going on. And in that exact same moment, the uh, we're, we're having work done on the house. And so the, the guy knocked on the door and wanted to be paid. And so we were sort of in this chaotic moment our, ourselves. Um, after that, we were glued uh, to the TV. And, and like you said, it, it, you know, it was both shocking and surprising and not shocking and surprising. I mean, there was plenty of warning that something could happen. Um, and I always, you know, I always think the fact that I'm still surprised by things is a good thing. I haven't gotten so cynical that um, that I always expect the worst. But um, yeah, I had I had hoped that it, it that it wouldn't happen. Um, I think like everybody, I'd hoped that it wouldn't happen. Um, and then, you know, just kind of watching it play out was interesting because the beginning, at the beginning, the images that they were showing, I mean, they were almost comical in the sort of disorganization of the folks who were in the Capitol and the sort of wandering around and taking selfies. Um, but of course, as more information came out and you saw the violence and you saw the kinds of things they were saying, and, and like you mentioned, the gallows, um, the, the sort of degree of shock um, and recognition that that space is really a sacred secular space in a lot of ways, which wasn't something I'd given a lot of thought to ahead of time. And of course, I view everything through the lens of teaching sociology. And so I go immediately to what is it about the organization of society? What is it, is it about structure that can help to explain what's going on, that can help to explain the, the patterns that we saw? both leading up to and within that moment. You know, and uh, I, I'm going to throw away my questions for a minute. And because you <laughs> can't, I mean, I think you touched on what really I'm wondering and why I wanted you to join us today is what is it about society? And yeah, it, it seemed really, really weird to me. Yeah, as more information started coming in, seeing pictures of people yeah milling about posing for selfies they didn't really seem to accomplish anything after they got in there or have an organized idea of what was going to happen after they got into the capital and then there also as more information came in i started realizing that it seemed like there was people from a lot of different walks of life, like hate groups, you know, white supremacists, QAnon supporters, I don't know really what to call it, and upper middle class people, business owners, people going there just to kind of have fun. So yeah, what is it about society that leads up to something like this? Because it, it wasn't like a, I, I guess I don't really know it, but it didn't seem like a revolution, you know, like a organized, you know, let's take the Bastille. I don't know. You know, I think a lot of it is that we do live in a very diverse society, even when we're looking at something that kind of from the outside seems monolithic. And we, 
a lot of people have a tendency to talk about Trump's base or Trump supporters as if they're cut from the same cloth. And they're not. Um, you know, obviously they have things in common, but you're talking about quite a few million people. They're not all the same. So I think what we saw at the rally and then what we saw in terms of the, the siege of the Capitol, you have sort of the culmination of a movement with many leaders, possibly two movements, maybe more with many leaders, plus a whole bunch of people who were there for a whole variety of reasons and probably with different levels of belief in the degree to which um, or that the election had been stolen. I mean, like you said, you definitely had a set of people from white nationalist and white supremacist groups, um, militia organizations, and those have leaders, but multiple leaders. There were people there who clearly did know what they were planning to do and were prepared to do it. They came um, looking awfully prepared to engage in violence. But then on the other hand, I think you had people who came to the rally and were sort of kind of swept along with the crowd. I don't know if you've ever been in a big crowd. If I mean, I remember this just from being in high school because my high school was crowded and you just have to keep moving in the direction of the crowd because you can't really get out. And of course there was a woman who was trampled and you know that tells you something about how difficult it can be to get out. So I think some people were sort of swept along with it, happy to be there, happy to get into the Capitol, um, but not really sure what they were doing once they got there. And then the thing that I'm pretty sure existed, I have no way to prove this because the footage cameras don't follow these folks. I suspect there were a lot of people who sort of drifted off from the edges and left. But those people, you know, obviously didn't get into the main melee, and so we don't we don't really hear from them, and we don't really know who they are. But I do want to say there were there was absolutely planning ahead of time for this. There was absolutely discussion on the social media sites that you talked about, and so this wasn't um, this wasn't sort of this crowd collective behavior where everybody just kind of gets swept up and loses their mind in the moment. Um, it's always more complicated than that. And just one thing to add there, especially because I talked about the, the woman who was trampled, um, we actually see a lot more pro-social behavior in crowds than most people think. Most people, first of all, most people are in crowds like that with people they know. Um, and that leads to some pro-social behavior. And I would be willing to bet that around that woman and around other people who may have been injured, that there were people trying to help as well. And we, we just don't see that as much, unless you have a social scientist right in the crowd planning <laughs> to, uh, to, to talk about it. And there were, um, I've read some work by at least a couple of historians who were there and, and reporting on what was going on. And I, I should have looked up their names. I didn't, um, but they can certainly be found. I think that'll be interesting when, yes, various kinds of academics that may have been in the area at the time or in the crowd at the time, when things that they witnessed start coming out, I think that will be very interesting. You talked about, you know, groups with different leaders and how there were multiple groups, multiple leaders and a lot of things going on in prior planning. I, for my master's, I worked a little bit with um, um, 
it actually online gaming and connecting socially in that way. And um, so it's a little different than social media, although it's related. Do, what do you know about social media and the role of social media in having these groups coalesce and then kind of leading them to a common cause? People talk about, you know, the Arab Spring and how that was really fueled a lot by social media because there wasn't really other ways for people to communicate and coalesce. How maybe two things. How does it happen? <laughs> number one. And how is it different than in the past before we had social media i was talking with a, a client that i have in turkey today and he brought up nazi germany during world war ii and because his family was involved in that in a way and how they were still able to coalesce and create this thing even without social media so has it really changed things is it just made it easier I suspect it's made it easier, um, but I don't think it's social media alone. And I can talk a little bit about sort of general perspectives on social movements and, and how they form. I think one of the things right now is that when you're talking about Nazism, there's state-sponsored TV, right? And so there is there is a um, sort of that propaganda coming out, coming from one place. And even in terms of Nazi Germany, not everybody, certainly not everybody who went along with Hitler, with the Nazi party, did so for the same reasons. Um, you know, there were a lot of reasons for doing that. I'm not an expert in Nazi Germany, so I'm not gonna go too far in that direction. Um, but what we have right now is not state-sponsored TV, but if you look at the different groups in society, we all have our different media. And so these echo chambers have um, come about in social media and also in regular broadcast media. So, you know, a lot of what we saw going on or what we've seen going on in the last however many years is whether things start on social media or they start on, um, for what we're talking about here, this right-wing broadcast media, they feed on each other um, and they, they sort of amplify each other so that if you're in that world, and here the right-wing world, um, you are getting information that doesn't contradict itself, right? You're getting information that all says the same thing and then you're having that information discussed in social media with like-minded people and that, especially if they're people you know, people you connect with, that makes you feel a sense of belonging um, and a sense of truth and add the conspiracy theories to this. Um, and these conspiracy theories, I mean, QAnon is, is the most obvious one are echoed in the right-wing media. They're echoed by President Trump and they're being told, people are being told that you cannot trust any other source of information. That has echoes of cult to me, um, <laughs> right? And, and all of us, I mean, all of us have confirmation bias problems, right? We all look for information that supports what we already think. And we discount information that doesn't support what we already think. And I think in some ways it gets worse over time it's kind of like, you know, the saying of throwing good money after bad, right? Because you've, you've already taken this step. And so you have to take the next step. And then you have to take the next step because you've already got so much into it. And it's really hard to backtrack 
from this belief system that you've already committed to. And so when the social media comes into it, it's, it's combined with so many other elements, certainly, certainly much easier to spread conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are nothing new in the United States. We have had conspiracy theories going all the way back and they've been propagated by newspapers. We've had, you know, the, the newspaper system in this country was very partisan early on. And so you read the Democratic newspaper, you read the Republican newspaper, but you are also in a world where you were regularly having conversations with people who weren't in that same world as you. And so it was harder to get, I don't know, sucked so far down into that, into that rabbit hole. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Now you I did. And <laughs> I, one term that you used, echo chamber. And that just really struck me because that's what it is. Like you only get what you believe in. And if you're only <laughs> fed what you believe in, how can you objectively evaluate somebody else's opinion or talk to somebody else? It seems, um, yeah, it seems crazy. And then like, you were talking about, you know, having some psychology background. It's like people want validation and that's what those things do. It's like, oh yeah, I was right. Oh yeah, look, oh, I'm even more right now. Oh yeah, I'm down the rabbit hole. And that sense of belonging that you get, we all need that sense of belonging. And, you know, we are a very individualistic country, right? I mean, we, we talk a lot about individuals, but the reality is, um, I know you've got anthropology background too, is, is human beings are social creatures. We need that. And this is a way to belong to something bigger than us. Um, it's, it's a way to belong to something that might really matter um, in society. And, and who, doesn't, who doesn't want that? Yeah. You teach classes in social movements, right? Would you describe the radical right as a social movement, a, a bunch of different social movements? I, I, this is why I wonder. It seems like it, whatever it is, and, and the right-wing media, it seemed like for years to just be very organized with a very clear message it almost seemed like there was one person like writing the the catchphrases they all used and everything that was like if you turn on the news that people are saying the same things over and over and over again and it felt to me like there was a wizard of oz over there or something manipulating it um what is it <laughs> or can you speak to that like what i mean what is it how is it formed how how why is it so powerful? I would right, define, ask you the right questions, even. Yeah, I'm not no, no, sure. no. I, you know, I would define the. So I'm going to get technical here for just a moment. If you'll, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to read a definition of social movement because we have listeners much smarter than I am. So yeah. <laughs> when I, when I, uh, when I teach social movements, I tend to start with a whole bunch of definitions of social movements because even among the you know the folks who study this there's really not an agreement although there are some characteristics they have in common so i'm going to read for just a moment um, and this comes from a book by david snow and sarah soul um, and how they define social movements is is social movements are collectivities acting with some degree of organization and continuity partly outside of institutional or organizational channels 
for the purpose of challenging extant systems of authority or resisting change in such systems um, in the organization, society, culture, or world system in which they are embedded, right? There's a lot of wishy-washiness in all of that, right? It's, it's you don't really know a social movement until it's like come to fruition somehow, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we also have these fancy terms about social movement industries and social movement sectors and social movement organizations. And so any social movement, um, broadly speaking, so if you think about the, the, um, the right as a, the right-wing movement, if you will, it's really a combination of a lot of different movements. So there's the religious right is involved there. Um, white supremacy and white nationalist movements are very much involved there. And that doesn't mean that white supremacist movements and re the religious right always agree with each other, they, they don't. And then add militia movements to that. And so I think part of what has happened in the last, I mean, going back before President Trump's presidency, um, you have coming together though in the last four years, a bunch of pieces of the movement who see themselves as having, um, having goals that kind of go together in some way where they can be sort of mutually helpful to each other. And you see this kind of thing happening in any social movement that you look at. And so on the left, you have um, movements that have to do with environmentalism coming together with movements that have to do with um, anti-nuke um, that connect with frames of motherhood. I mean, there's this happens all the time. And so I think we're in this moment where there is sort of a broader right wing um, that has a bunch of different movements coming together. But then within each of those movements, you have different organizations, some more radical than others, different leadership structures, different ways that they operate, different kind of tactics that they use. Um, and, and in some ways, I think the chaos you saw in the Capitol and, and around the Capitol on that day had a lot to do with, it's not like one simple um, movement organization where everybody agrees. Um, and, and what's interesting to me about that is, is we talk about movements. I have a flashing light behind me, so I'm just going to turn okay. that on. <laughs> I don't know why it's doing that. Um, <laughs> we talk about the civil rights movement as if it's a monolith. Mm -hmm. It's not. The civil rights movement was absolutely not a monolith. You had a lot of people disagreeing and you had people changing over time, right? We just had Martin Luther King Day and there is all sorts of debate over who Martin Luther King was. We turn him into this kind of cardboard cutout of who he was or who we think he was at one moment, but he changed over time and he was more complex than the, the certain quotes that we tend to bring up on Martin Luther King Day, right? Yeah. So hopefully that gets a little bit at, you know, yes, I think, the, I think the right wing is a social movement, but what that means is a really, really complex thing. <laughs> Yes, I think I think that does explain it very well. I another I just read um, a, a review of a book. What was it called? Why Nations Fail. And in it, they talk about how um, 
nations fail their their citizens by not providing infrastructure, not providing social programs and things like that. And one of the things they talked about is some of the the rise of this of of some of the 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 right wing um, feeling left out of the country and, and wanting to fight back or something is is part of people who used to be in the middle class that their jobs went away or whatever and Greg, i feel I like say, you were you were frozen for a while i think it's my mm. internet so i okay. didn't catch most of the last minute or two okay no problem i'll go ahead and repeat so um I was I was reading an article about a book why nations fail and they're talking about how citizens can become disenfranchised when their governments don't um, support them with infrastructure and social programs and they were talking about how a lot of the unrest within some of these movements in the US have been because for a couple decades now we have our government hasn't put it forth as much um, um, resources towards social programs and infrastructure and the wage gap is increasing. Um, there's smaller middle class. Um, what do you know about that as far as some like economic pressures causing some of this unrest? You know, I, I think what's interesting about social movements is, is in the public understanding of them and the public discussion of them, a lot of what we talk about is grievances. Um, but the reality, of course, is that there are always grievances um, and they don't always turn into movements. And so structurally, resources matter, political opportunities matter. Um, those networks we talked about forming over social media matter. Charismatic leadership certainly doesn't hurt. But the grievances are, are there. And if you look at movements on the left or you look at union movements, you look at the civil rights movement, the women's movement, yeah, a lot of it is, okay, as citizens, we're not getting the promise of citizenship, right? Um, we have this, uh, we have these founding documents that talk about liberty and freedom. And if you look at the, really the origins of the country, right? No taxation without representation, most of um, most of the people in the country at that point remain taxed without representation because the voting the voting block was very small um, in terms of in terms of race and in terms of class and in terms of gender. Um, what I think is really interesting now is you know we've got this whole history of movements for people who weren't represented originally and who have fought very hard for representation. Um, who have fought very hard to be part of the promise of America and that infrastructure that goes along with citizenship. What you see in the right wing, I, in a lot of ways is a backlash from those movements, right? Because what you see in the right wing tends to be predominantly working class white men, not entirely. There are certainly working class white women um, and not everybody is technically in the working class, although it's also really hard to define what working class is. My husband and I have these arguments about what it means to be working class. It's kind of ridiculous. This is what happens when you have two academics <laughs> in a household. Um, but there is a sense that they are losing ground compared to other people. And that sense doesn't really it isn't really backed up by evidence, but the feeling that they are losing ground 
is absolutely understandable because of what you're talking about. The, the infrastructure um, of society has not kept up. We have increasing inequality. Certainly a young white man graduating from, from high school or even college right now doesn't have a guarantee of a stable future. And so those grievances are very much real. I think that the movement for a variety of reasons takes as its enemy, not necessarily the, the actual causes of those problems, right? But we have never been very good at um, blaming the structure of society, right? I'm a sociologist. I think about how the structure of society shapes everything, but that definitely goes against the concept of the American dream and the, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of ideas of, you know, you work hard enough and, and you'll make it. And that idea of you, if you work hard enough, you'll make it, that worked pretty well for white working class Americans for a good chunk of time, especially following World War II. And so there is a sense of loss um, going on there. I and a lot of other people would characterize the cause of that very differently than groups that didn't used to have power have sort of skipped ahead in line. I don't know if you've read, um, there's a book called Strangers in Their Own Land by, I'm going to blank on who wrote that book right now, uh, Arlie, Arlie Hochschild, there we go. Okay. Um, and, and she, it's a really interesting book because she went to Louisiana and she was studying people who were on the right and were very inventive anti-environmentalist, even though it seemed like it wasn't in their interest to be that way. She started that study before Trump ran for president, but then Trump, Trump ran for president. And it really became a study of people who supported Trump in Louisiana, even though it seemed to go against their economic interests, right? And so part of what she talks about is people feel like they were in line to get what they were entitled to get, to get what the American dream promised them, and then felt like other people were skipping ahead in, in line. And that sense of relative deprivation, right, is, is that's, a, that's a tough one. That feels like a grievance. And then add it to all the other pieces we talked about before. And there's, you know, there's, a, there's a logic to these movements being really compelling. Um, for folks who um, who join them, if you will, and even join is a, is a strange way to put it because most time most of the time you're not, you know, putting your name on a registry. You're just sort of part of that broader movement. Yeah, that just made me. I wish we could talk for hours, but we can't. It just made me think of so many more things. You know, like, um, you know, teaching and having clients from all over the world. I know that this is not only happening in America. You know, there's other populist presidents and people talk a lot about how populist governments get elected. And a lot of it has to do with that, of people feeling they got skipped over and things aren't happening the way they were supposed to happen and things like that. So, I mean, in, in so many ways, it seems very understandable. Well, I, well, I think there's always a tendency to scapegoat, right? I mean, you know, you don't, one of the things that happens is you look at your immediate surroundings and, and you look for reasons for things happening. Plus in the United States, because we have this American dream, we're always identifying up. We always feel like, you know, we could, 
we could make it into those higher classes. And so, and we're so caught up in the notion of capitalism as the be all and end all economic system. What's been interesting to me is in my lower division classes, there are students, a reasonable number of students who don't understand that an economy can be mixed between, you know, and have elements of capitalism and elements of socialism. And so if they don't understand in the abstract that an economy can be mixed, they definitely don't understand that we have a mixed economy, <laughs> right? Right. And so, you know, we sort of set up capitalism versus socialism in a way that just isn't reality. Plus we combine it with political systems because of course capitalism isn't a political system, it's an economic system. And you know, there are countries all over the world with social democratic, sorry, social democratic governments. And, and you're right, in a lot of those places, we see these, these populist um, uprisings, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting. So let's let's finish with this. We've been talking a lot about social problems. <laughs> what what are the social solutions? I mean, I like to look forward. I, I'm an optimist, although maybe I shouldn't be sometimes a, a hopeless romantic about the way the world should be. How, what, what do you think are things that we can actually change, like either through governmental regulation, programs, social movements, um, as individuals, what, what are, some things we can do to come together, be less divisive, live, live oh, in peace and harmony, <laughs> like teenagers, you know? Why can't everybody just get along? Yeah, my <laughs> album. If I had the answers to that, I, that would be fantastic. I, and I, I am also generally an optimistic person, which is, which is why what happened at the Capitol could still surprise me, right? But I think part of the reason I'm optimistic is I spend a lot of time with young people um, and they have energy and they're not cynical and they're, you know, for the most part. Um, and so I, I have a lot of hope in the generations that are coming up. I, I feel like they are a lot of people. I mean, I hate to talk about generations as monoliths because nothing is a monolith, but I do see a lot of realism. Um, as opposed to pessimism in my students. And so they can be pretty clear-eyed about the reality that the, the American dream isn't quite what it's kind of supposed to be. Um, but they also see, they see people like um, Greta Thunberg, right? Who are out there making a difference, young people who are out there making a difference. And so I, just as a, as a, general rule, I, I find young people really motivating um, and, and they make me feel much better about the future. Um, what, I, what I tell them, um, you know, from an individual perspective, I think this is going to be nothing new. Everybody's talking about needing good critical thinking skills, needing to be able to evaluate um, sources of information. But I also, I encourage my students to read across the political spectrum to read um, international news as well as national and local news. Cause the reality is a lot of the really interesting things are happening at the local level. Um, 
we're seeing a lot of change at the local level and that's encouraging as well. I always, I keep thinking about when I was in grade school, I don't know how long they did these. I don't know if you had these, but we used to have these little worksheets where you had to write fact or opinion. There were all these statements, you know, fact, opinion, fact, opinion. That would be helpful. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but what I tell my students, and, and this gets at the confirmation bias part of this, is that you should, I mean, obviously you want to fact check the things that you don't agree with, but I really encourage them to fact check the things they do agree with. I think it's just as important to do that. Um, and that's all really general, right? I mean, we should encourage people to do this, but I will give you two concrete things <laughs> that I'm thinking about from a structural perspective. Get your one, pens and papers, people. <laughs> <laughs> one, what we know is that contradicting information doesn't make people change their minds. But you can reach across divides when you're talking about values that we have in common. And I actually found it heartening that after the, the riots at the Capitol, there were some connections across political leanings in terms of the values that that went against. What I would really love to see is more value placed upon the public good and the need for civic responsibility. And we can go back to the founders if we want to, to see that emphasis, right? They were not just about how do things benefit me, they were trying to build a country. And that's a cooperative effort. In a practical sense, what I'd really love to see is, um, a national service program. Um, a lot of students coming straight from high school into college, they're really not ready yet for a whole variety of reasons. And a national service program that would allow them to engage in a lot of different types of service would give them a year to mature a little bit more, um, give them a sense that service matters, that caring about people who are not you and not like you matters. So from a concrete perspective, that's something I would love to see. I know that's a huge program, but we have models. We have the Peace Corps. We have Teach for America. I mean, it's not necessarily building something from scratch. And then the other thing I'd really like to see is going back to the fairness doctrine. Um, and so I don't know how much you know about the fairness doctrine, but it, it's old, it's been around since I think the 1940s, but I believe in 2011, we sort of um, moved away from it. And basically what it was is it said, if it was an FCC thing, mm -hmm. if you have a broadcast license, you have to, I'm gonna read this part so that I do this right. You have to present controversial issues of public importance, and you have to do that in a manner that's honest, equitable, and balanced. I feel like what shows up in the media needs to be fact-checked somehow. And it is, it's perfectly fine for people to have different opinions, but present those. Um, and, and so this echo chamber in the broadcast media, I think there are things regulation-wise that we could do about that. We can't do that in terms of social media. People are gonna find their, their echo chambers there, but if it's not magnified and sort of amplified in that way I talked about earlier, I think that would be something concrete that, that we could do um, if we can manage to work together. <laughs> you know, I've been thinking a lot about that lately just with the pandemic and, um, how when I was a child, when you watched family television, there were always advertisements about like 
um, you know, social issues like eat your vegetables, you know, or eat your fruit public or public service announcements. And I don't see them anymore. I mean, I'm in a foreign country and maybe they do exist, but I'm sure they don't exist like they did 45 years ago. Um, and I think that's something that the government can do, just like you were saying, just with simple regulations. Like you have to put some of this in there, you know. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I mean, we had that doctrine for a very long period of time. Um, I was reading this morning too about things like cable packaging, um, you know, so so when, when you have a cable package, you are paying for networks that are on the right or on the left. And so the obvious ones are MSNBC and um, Fox. So you're supporting them, even if you don't agree with them. And there's a there there's and this is not my own um I'm, this is not just me saying this this is this is things i've been reading about um if those networks needed to compete there might be some changes in in how they do things um and really you know i don't think most people are asking for a whole lot honesty um and being as you know, sort of straightforward as you can about what we know and what we don't know. Um, and differing opinions are perfectly fine, but include, um, I, I, I try to avoid saying, avoid both sides of an issue because I think every <laughs> issue has multiple sides and multiple interpretations. And so a lot of folks talk about, you know, figure it out for yourself, like do your own research um, and, and come to your own opinion. But if we don't give them very easily the tools to see things in different ways, then their own research is just going to reflect what they already believe. Um, and I don't think that that's healthy as a society. Very good. Let's end it there. <laughs> I think that was great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, listeners, like, comment, subscribe. Are you on any kind of media, like Twitter or anything that you want people to connect or I not? not? I have avoided Twitter <laughs> so far. I'm supposed to be and I can't seem to be able to do it. I need to hire somebody to do it for me. Well, thank but you. You know, I am at Colorado Mesa University. I have an email through the university. I'm certainly happy to talk to people. Perfect. Colorado Mesa University in beautiful Grand Junction, Colorado. Thank you for joining us.